Finally, he got a call that, oh, we, we, we got the skipper. We got the six. Uh, Lima six is, is the, the uh, call sign for the c- company commander. Lieutenant Neal was Lima five. And Lieutenant Neal said, good, put him on the hook. And uh, they said that Lima six is a routine casualty. And at first, Captain Neal, Lieutenant Neal said, oh, good. That's, that means he's, he's hurt. He can't talk. But routine casualty can mean either a, a routine wound or the person's dead. And in this case, once he realized that it meant that Captain Gannon was no longer alive, he put out a call on the radio net, all stations be advised, Lima 5 is now Lima 6. An excerpt from today's guest, whose new book details intense street fighting by the Marines in Iraq in 2004. Author and retired Lieutenant Colonel David Kelly is here to discuss hell in the streets of Huseva. And I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. May 30th is Memorial Day in the United States, a day in which America honors her warriors, and my book, Immortal Valor, is out now. The book chronicles these immortal heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you check out the book, available in stores and online, to discover more as we honor America's warriors this Memorial Day. Welcome back. Today's guest, served as an infantry officer with Lima Company 3rd Battalion 4th Marines with an amphibious readiness group off the coast of Vietnam. He volunteered to return to active duty to deploy to Iraq in 2004 as a senior field historian to conduct interviews with Marines and sailors in Iraq. His latest book is a result of that effort, called Hell in the Streets of Huseba. And author David Kelly joins us now. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. It's uh, it's an amazing battle that uh, has not given it um, much ado in uh, in the annals of history. Before we get into the book, I wanted to hear more about your service in Vietnam as a, as an infantry officer in the um, amphibious re- readiness group. Is that what it was? Correct. Called? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Back then, uh, they were called amphibious readiness group or ARG. And we were ARG 3-4, which was 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. Today, the equivalent is a MU, Marine Expeditionary Unit, which is a battalion. So I, uh, after I was commissioned uh, and I went through officer training, my first assignment was uh, to 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. And we deployed uh, in October of 1972. And uh, basically, it was four ships. Uh, on my ship, we had uh, Marine amphibious personnel carriers. Amtrak's. Uh, the other one of the other ships had uh, helicopters. Another ship had the old-fashioned World War II landing craft. And uh, basically, the battalion uh, patrolled off the coast of Vietnam. Uh, we occasionally went to the Philippines for training on land. Hmm. Uh, when we weren't on land, we were doing um, cleaning weapons, doing classes on board the ships. So for five months, uh, I spent the time there. We almost uh, looked like when the uh, Paris Peace Accords were signed in January. 73, that we might be getting called back in because our mission as a battalion of about 1,300 Marines was uh, just to go into an area, secure a small area for an evacuation uh, or on further on-call forces. But at that time, there there weren't any ground Marines in Vietnam. So as a result, I got a, a Vietnamese uh, service medal because I was in the war zone, but I was never I never set foot in Vietnam. When did you leave the war? 
March of 73, we returned to Okinawa. And then I spent the rest of my uh, first tour uh, on Okinawa until August. And then I came back and I was a, a series commander uh, at Paris Island at the recruit training depot for a, a while. And then I was in an administrative job there before I left active duty. Moving forward in time to the late 90s, mm -hmm. you're working as an operations officer in the Marine Field History uh, Detachment. Correct. Um, which is, sounds like interesting work, uh, to say the least. But you, um, when the war broke out in the early 2000s, you decided to return to active duty. What prompted that? Well, I think every Marine, in fact, a lot of the Marine reservists that I talked to when I was overseas said that they, they trained for this mission, they trained to do this work, and that's all they ever did was train. And they actually wanted to go and deploy and do the actual job. So in, in the field history detachment, we did some um, active duty assignments, two-week assignments. To go, We went to Haiti. Uh, several of us went to Stuttgart, Germany for Marine Forces Europe. Uh, we went to Avion, Italy. Uh, some of our guys went down to uh, um, Sarajevo, Yugoslavia mm. um, in, the, in the late 90s. And uh, 1999 was the end of my time as, uh, as a reservist. I was re retired. But uh, every year, the unit would have a Marine Corps birthday celebration in November. And um, November of 2003, I was very anxious to find out uh, what the guys and gals had done in the, the initial invasion of Iraq in 2003. That was in this March of 2003, they went in. And they were attached to various units interviewing Marines. And I kind of jokingly said to the officer in charge, who had been a peer of mine, but he, he was a, a full colonel by this time, I said, sir, if you had, remember, you have us old retired guys, if you ever need us to, to go back. Uh, he laughed, and uh, a couple weeks later, he called me, and he said, we can use you because the uh, reservists that we have have used up their reserve time. Uh, they can't deploy again. So I, uh, uh, I really wanted to do it. My wife finally agreed to it. My daughters said, this is what dad wants to do. And uh, that was the, the incentive to actually do the work that I had been trained to do and and help train other people to do, um, to sit down and listen to Marines and get their stories. Wow. And that leads us right into the book. Mm -hmm. um, now, this battle was overshadowed by the battle at Fallujah, which mm -hmm. was happening at the same time. Correct. Could you describe this operation and the action for our audience? Yeah, this was, a, it's a very small town. Probably the actual town of Huseba is about a mile by a mile in size right smack dab on the border with Syria. And uh, it's a, a, a major entry point for uh, commerce and smuggling uh, into Syria. Uh, there was one battalion uh, stationed uh, nearby there, uh, about 10 miles, 15 miles from the actual city. And this infantry battalion, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, uh, they had a company in the town of Huseba during this, uh, this time. And uh, they were training uh, Iraqi uh, police candidates. Um, and uh, when this stuff went up in Fallujah, at the same time, things happened in uh, Huseba. Uh, they had had some indications that there was uh, rising discontent, foreign fighters coming into the city. Um, and then in the, in the middle of April, that's when things really blew up. Uh, uh, huge mortar attacks, uh, firefights, fighting with uh, forces, broke out throughout the city. And um, a, a part of the thing that I get into in the book is the company commander that was uh, in Huseba. Uh, 
company commander, uh, Rich Gannon, he, um, he went, he was out with a platoon, uh, in the morning. He was after a couple of hours, he wasn't heard from on the radio anymore. Uh, the executive officer didn't know where he was. Uh, in the meantime, the battalion commander, uh, called in several companies of the battalion and they lined up on the East side of the city, uh, and, uh, swept through the city late in the day. Uh, and then that night they lined up on the North side of the city and swept through the city that night. And that kind of put an end to the, to the big fighting in the city. So it was just one battalion versus Fallujah, which was, I think four or five battalions. Uh, Mm -hmm. Fallujah was an easy drive from Baghdad. Uh, Fallujah was where, uh, uh, the uh, civilian reporters were and the civilian ph- photographers. Uh, Huseba, a lot smaller, uh, over a lot more quickly. And, and basically after the, uh, the two days of high intensity fighting, things quieted down in Huseba, where in Fallujah, there was a whole um, political situation and a Fallujah brigade was formed and that's a whole different story. Um, but Huseba, the Marines put, the, put down their foot and that was the end of the heavy duty fighting. Uh, Huseba, that is. Yeah. And you were operating as a Marine historian. Uh, Correct. Interviewing soldiers who were very busy <laughs> fight, <laughs> doing the fighting. So what, what was your process like? Well, to to, uh, to get there, I had to make arrangements with uh, various uh, um, officers, uh, the regimental commander, people through him, uh, then uh, email the commander out at uh, uh, Huseba, and let them know that I was coming with, there was another officer with me, uh, Major John Piedmont, who worked as a team. So uh, well in advance, we let people know that we were coming. Uh, we asked them to have people ready to meet with us if they could. Then we traveled by helicopter from Camp Fallujah to uh, the uh, train depot at El Kaim, which is the name of the region, but there's a train depot at El Kaim, And that's where the uh, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines was. Uh, so the first day uh, in, uh, Major Piedmont and I would sat down got a briefing from the uh, a battalion operations officer, huge wall map, gave us an overview of operations. Uh, I, I made a note in my journal, though, it was like a fire hose on a flat rock because we were not familiar with what was going on there. We hadn't really heard too much about it. We read some reports about what was going on there. Um, so the first day there, we got a, a quick overview, and then we interviewed several Marines that evening. And then the next morning, uh, uh, the battalion had arranged to take us out to the uh, the Marine uh, base or camp in Huseba. And I was fortunate enough to ride with the battalion commander who, as we went on this 30-minute ride, uh, gave me an update on everything that had happened, uh, where his vehicle had been hit a couple of weeks before by a rocket. Uh, we went and visited a um, uh, an Iraqi police station. And then we finally got to, uh, at that time, it was called Camp Camp Huseba later became known as Camp Gannon after Captain Gannon and uh, uh, met with a company commander, a platoon commander, uh, and individual Marines. So at each, mm-hmm. in each case, uh, I would give them a brief overview. Here's what I'm here for. This is not uh, an investigation. Uh, I just want your words. And the, uh, the interesting part is that these were um, memories that had happened to these Marines a couple of weeks in advance. Uh, everything I did was uh, unclassified. Uh, so in some cases, they would explain to me what was happening using a map. And I didn't photograph the map uh, because I wasn't sure what the classification of that was. That's right. a whole other issue of uh, doing these interviews unclassified. But basically, each unit 
selected people for me to see. I wasn't a random running around with a microphone hoping to uh, get onto something. And uh, the interviews that I did turned out to be just fascinating uh, what the Marines were able to tell me and remember. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, my guest will be author Chris Kolakowski discussing his new book, Nations in the Balance, the India-Burma Campaigns, December 1943 to August 1944. It was a tremendous fight at long odds, but the British held on very well. And it was interesting, and this this is one of the reasons I love the war diaries, I love documents like that, is because you find little nuggets that put everything together. The keeper of the war diary wrote at the very end when they knew they'd won the battle, he said, England first innings score, which is a cricket analogy. You know, it's one of those small statements that actually says a great deal. That's next time. Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material from the podcast plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. Were they pretty forthcoming? As far uh, as they were. Yeah, usually my approach was at uh, the time I was 55 years old, I'm a high school history teacher. Uh, even though I was a lieutenant colonel, I think I, I spoke to them more as a, as a history teacher. And... Um, said, I'd like to get a little bit of your background, uh, how you came into the Marines, uh, were you here in 2003? And that, that kind of opened things up. And I tried not to ask a lot of questions as once the interviews got going. Uh, looking back on it, I probably should have asked more questions interrupting because sometimes they'd use a term that later on I had to look up myself. Yeah. Um, but when, once the, the interview got going, it, it was amazing just how, um, how clear their memories were of what had happened and, 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 and important things. Sometimes not so clear on the dates. Like they might say, oh, sir, this happened, uh, I think it was the second week. Uh, I know this happened on the 17th, um, but it was enough for me to get a really good uh, interview from a lot of these uh, Marines that had been in the heavy fighting in, in uh, Huseba. Is there one story or a moment that uh, remains with you? From uh, There's two. Uh, the first was uh, when I met with the, uh, the company commander, uh, Captain Dominic Neal. Uh, he was a Naval Academy graduate, uh, sat down with him in this big room with a big map on the table. And the first 20 minutes was I was trying to stay awake. It was basically how they prepared for the operation, how they prepared for deployment, uh, a lot of administrative things. And then the last 30 minutes was just amazing. It was, he was the executive officer of the company. Uh, He was at the base when the company commander was out with a platoon. And uh, he was in contact with the company commander and he explained about the relationship he had with his company commander, how well they worked together. Uh, and um, after a, a, a while, he wasn't, he wasn't hearing from the company commander on the radio net. And um, finally, he got a call that, oh, we, we, we got the skipper. We got the six. Uh, Lima six is, is the, the uh, call sign for the c- company commander. Uh, and ca- uh, um, Lieutenant Neal was Lima five. And Lieutenant Neal said, good, put him on the hook put him on the radio. Uh, and uh, they said that he's uh, uh, Lima six is a routine casualty. And at first Captain Neal, Lieutenant Neal said, Oh, good. That's, that means he's, he's hurt. He can't talk, but routine casualty can mean either a, a routine wound or the person's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, once he realized that it meant that uh, Captain Gannon was no longer alive, uh, he put out a call on the radio net, uh, all stations be advised, Lima 5 is now Lima 6. And so the other platoons in the city knew this what was happening. Uh, the other interview that was really stands out was uh, Lieutenant Watson, who was a platoon commander, 
And uh, he um, he was out in the, in the city that day. His platoon had been hit pretty hard. And he was finally told to come to um, a building. And there was a, a Marine officer on top of the building. And uh, Lieutenant Watson said, where, where, where are the bad guys? And this lieutenant stomped his foot and he pointed downward. And he said, they're about 15 meters below me in this building. Uh, the architecture in Iraq, a lot of the buildings have outside stairways. When I first heard this interview, like, how did he how did he get on top of the building and not know anybody was in it? We well, went up a stairway in an adjacent building and climbed over the roof. Um, so Lieutenant Watson was uh, saying, "Well, you know, can we get these guys out? Can we talk to them?" He said, "No, we've we've talked to them. We fired at them." Um, finally, what they did was they um, pulled up some cans of gasoline onto the roof, poured the gasoline down the inner stairwell, and then they ran down the steps. And Lieutenant Watson and the other lieutenant, Lieutenant Carroll, uh, cooked off their grenades, meaning they pulled the pin, let it release for a couple of seconds, and then tossed the grenades in the window and set off a huge fireball explosion inside the building. Mm. Uh, the firing stopped, and then one or two of the insurgents tried to escape from the building, and they were shot by Lieutenant Watson. Mm-hmm. And then Lieutenant Watson basically thought that was the end of the story, but he said then he found that there were three Marines that they had found uh, dead inside the building. They had been shot entering the building. And Lieutenant Watson said, I've found, uh, then they handed out a rifle, which did not have a scope on it. And Watson said, at that time, uh, the only people who didn't have scopes on their M16s were officers and staff. And then uh, somebody asked him to read the serial number on the uh, on the rifle. And he looked and he read it and he said, he, he knew that it was Captain Gannon's rifle. Oh. And then Captain Gannon was, was passed out. Captain Gannon was dead. He had been, they think he was shot by a, a a machine gun on entering the building right after the other Marines entered that building. So Lieutenant Watson was on the scene and he was the one who told the company commander, the now company commander, Lieutenant Neal, uh, the skipper's routine. Um, and then shortly after that, they, they removed the body. Lieutenant Watson met with the battalion commander who had arrived in the city. And, um, the battalion commander said, where's Rick? And, um, Watson said, sir, he's dead. Uh, he died. He said it was very awkward. And during the interview, he just kind of paused and ha- had to gather himself. So um, those are it's one incident, but it's from two different perspectives. Um, yeah. The other incident was a, uh, a corporal who was saved by a Medal of Honor winner. Uh, there was a corporal, Jason Dunham, who uh, was a squad leader. And he was at a vehicle checkpoint and they were stopping a, a vehicle and um Somebody got out and tried throwing a grenade at the group of Marines. And uh, Corporal Dunham uh, threw himself on the grenade with his helmet, uh, muffled the blast. Um, the Marines around him weren't hit at all. Um, but uh, Dunham was very seriously injured and evacuated a couple of instantly taken to Camp al and then taken to Baghdad and then taken to Germany. And his parents were able to fly out and were there about a week later when uh, Corporal Dunham died. So one of the Marines whose life was saved by Corporal Dunham was one of my, uh, one of the Marines that I interviewed. Uh, so I guess that's a, another of the really gripping stories. And Corporal Dunham received the Medal of Honor. Right. Uh, President Bush, uh, I think it was 2007 when he finally uh, posthumously was awarded the Medal of Honor. It's a tragic story. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the tough thing as a field historian uh, you're gathering so much information from so many people in a day or two. 
sometimes you're almost not listening to it. I was just taking notes and listening mm -hmm. to the interview. And it wasn't until later when I sat down and actually re-listened to the interviews and tried to transcribe them as best I could in addition to my notes. It just gave me more of an awareness of how incredible these, these guys were. A um, couple of Marines that I talked to, I said, what were you doing last year at this time? And sir, I just graduated from high school. I went into boot camp, got through my training, and, and here I am. This is what I was hoping was going to happen. Yeah, that was just post-2001, 9-11. Right. Mm -hmm. In doing this book, did you have to get permission from the Defense Department or anyone to uh, put this together? Yeah, what I had done uh, over the years since 2004, I gradually worked my way through all of the interviews, uh, not word-for-word word transcribing them, but getting the, the, the gist of it out. And then <laughs> being a history teacher, a high school history teacher, trying to put it into language that a regular person could understand. Right. Um, so then by about 2010, I had it all done, and it was 1,100 pages of all these interviews <laughs> that I sent to um, the history department, of the, uh, which is now the history division of headquarters Marine Corps. It's down in Quantico, Virginia, uh, and I got permission to use those interviews. Um, mm. Again, none of, none of it was classified, and I don't know if anybody actually sat down and read through all of them. I mean, it was, there was a lot of uh, um, – well, I did 190 interviews. So there are 190 interviews in this massive document. And um, so, yeah, I did get the permission. I have it have it downstairs. I have it in storage in case anybody says, are these things, are you able to do that? Um, but, yeah, I did get permission from the Marine Corps to use the interviews. And, again, it, not having anything classified, that makes it even, even better, yeah, easier to use. Yeah, I can imagine. It must have been a process, though, to whittle down, uh, you know, 1,100 pages to... <laughs> It's about 150 pages of actual text for this book. So uh, the first thing I did when I started, once I retired from teaching about five years ago, then I was able to really concentrate and spend blocks of time. So I looked and said, what would be a logical way to organize this? Um, and uh, one, one thing that I did is I said, well, let me go by the, the areas that I went to. So this is the first book. This is just um, the Battle of Huseba, the fighting in Huseba in a very short period of time. Uh, looking uh, some of the interviews that I did, I didn't put into this book. Uh, I tried to put the more interesting ones in. And then some of the interviews are um, just things that there were a couple platoons that were in, in the area, but not involved in the battle. They were on patrol and they were just doing security work. Um, the, the next book in the line, and this is your next question that I saw, right. uh, uh, is, is it's pretty much done as far as rough. It's called First Fights in Fallujah. And it's all of the infantry battalions that were involved in the fighting in Fallujah from the very beginning of April until probably early May when the Fallujah Brigade, the Iraqi Fallujah Brigade was formed. So I was able to, over uh, several months there in deployment, meet with uh, Marines from each of the infantry battalions that were involved in the, in the actions there. And also included in that is uh, uh, a chapter on aviation during this time which basically was helicopters. Uh, the time I was there, the, the uh, Harrier jets had not yet been deployed to Iraq. It was all uh, Huey helicopters and Cobras and um, CH-53s. It was the big the moving things. And they were used uh, in attacks uh, uh, in, in Fallujah. So I actually talked to a couple of uh, aviation Marines who were uh, flying missions over Fallujah and getting shot at, describing what that felt like. Uh, and uh, one one uh, helicopter pilot, his uh, rotor was hit by an RPG. It didn't explode, 
but it basically damaged his aircraft and he was able to fly the three miles from Fallujah back into uh, Camp Fallujah uh, and get the, get the, the chopper down. So yeah, the next book is uh, First Fights in Fallujah. Uh, I, I guess the publisher's waiting to see how this first book goes mm-hmm. uh, before they commit to that. The uh, In um, Hell on the Streets of Husaybe, there are 22 interviews. Uh, first Fights in Fallujah, it's about 35 interviews. And uh, a lot more chapters, uh, talk to a lot more Marines. And these were the various grunt units that were in the city, uh, t- tank units that were in the city, uh, uh, Amtrak units that were in the city. Um, just even more amazing stories, but it's a lot bigger book. Well, I hope this first book does well for <laughs> you. The book is called Hell in, Hus- in the Streets of Hoseba. David, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been fantastic. Well, thank you for having me, and I hope this will uh, lead to some more sales and people learn about the stories of these Marines. Absolutely. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be author Chris Kolakowski discussing his new book, Nations in the Balance, The India-Burma Campaigns, December 1943 to August 1944. It was a tremendous fight at long odds, but the British held on very well. And it was interesting, and this, this is one of the reasons I love the war diaries, I love documents like that, is because you find little nuggets that put everything together. The keeper of the war diary wrote at the very end when they knew they'd won the battle, he said, England first innings score, which is a cricket analogy. You know, it's one of those small statements that actually says a great deal. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review, a rating, or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.